Would you join me in turning uh, to the book of Mark, second book of the New Testament? And we'll go to, pay, uh, to uh, chapter 6, verse 30. And if you're using the book that's in the pew, the blue book, uh, you, you can turn to page 841. We'll be reading of two major incidences. The first, Jesus feeding the 5,000. The second, Jesus walking on the water. And you'll, you'll notice that they're closely combined because of the way the second one ends with a reference to the first event. <clears throat> well, let's begin. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves, loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before his people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea... And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, bless our understanding of your word. Bless our 
embrace of Jesus Christ, Lord, our further our faith in him, our confidence in who he is for us, what he is to us, and how he aims to bring abundant life to us constantly through his spirit. Oh, bless us, Lord, for your glory, we pray. Amen. If you're like me, you've used this phrase a bit of being a practical atheist, of not being a person who would openly deny that there is a God, but in practical ways to live at times as though there's not a God. This happens for me when I get angry. Sometimes, maybe, I have an argument with my wife. I'm just saying, that's just my imagination, but just say I do. And it is amazing how in that time of disagreement that all I'm focusing on is how much I've been hurt, I've been mistreated, I think, usually have it, and mis- misunderstood, and, 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 and God does, just doesn't exist at that point. It, it, it's like his bearing on my life can be almost nil for a few minutes and sometimes longer because all I'm concerned about is this conflict and what this person has done to me. Sometimes it happens when we have terrible things happen in our family, shocking things that happen to us, very close to home, maybe extended family. But it, it, it really happens, and it's off the charts of the possibility for us. We just didn't think that could ever happen to us, to me. And it, it shocks us. It, it so blacks everything out that for a while it seems like there isn't even a God. I have no hope. I have no, con- I have no sense of God being with me, concerned about me. And if I give myself to that, I can just block God out for a- an extended period of time as though he doesn't exist anymore. Though if somebody says, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, but for all practical purposes, it has no bearing in my life. And perhaps one of the most common ways for me is just blocking God out, like not having an active sense of his presence, of his love, tasting his goodness, feeding joyfully in what all he has done for me, but just gutting through day after day after day. Just me and myself just making it through the day, getting to the next day. In that way, I become a practical atheist. And the disciples at this point, when they have no idea what to do concerning these 5,000 people, and you have the living Lord among them who has exhibited his glory repeatedly to them, they act as though he doesn't even exist. Like he's not who he is. They don't respond to him. They don't go to him. They don't expect anything from him. Uh, In that point, they're manifesting the same unbelief of the Israelites in the desert. Because there they were. God had opened the water of the Red Sea. He had brought plagues upon the Egyptians. They're out in the desert. And you'd think their response would be, hey, we have nothing to eat. But I bet this God's going to take care of us after everything he's done. I bet this God is going to care for us abundantly because look what he's done to get us here. We're going to put ourselves in your hands and expect that you'll meet our needs. No. They, they just went crazy. 
and panicked and wanted to go back to Egypt because there's no way that anything good could happen to them out in the desert. And the Psalms treat that. They repeatedly did not believe in the goodness of God. And so at this point, the disciples are not believing in the goodness and greatness of Jesus to take care of this situation. They're only looking at what they have and what they can do, which is nothing, of course. So as we come to this passage, first, there's an interesting contrast between this passage and the one preceding it, which we, we didn't read, but it's the... It's, it, it's titled in your Bibles, The Death of John the Baptist, but it takes place at a banquet that Herod puts on. So you go from the, the banquet meal of Herod to the feeding of the 5,000 with Jesus. And it's interesting because the banquet meal of Herod is, is blasphemous, isn't it? It's, it's gaudy, it's garish, it is to promote himself. And he tries to impress his uh, important people when his daughter dances to say, hey, whatever you want, I'll get it for you. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he doesn't have the guts and the integrity and the character to say, well, no, I'm not going to do that for you. But he doesn't want to lose face. And he has John the Baptist put to death. That's the one banquet supposedly glorious, right? Supposedly magnificent, but corrupt to the core. And Herod is showing why, as it says later, the people are like sheep with no shepherd because he certainly is not being a faithful shepherd king over these people. He is corrupt and wicked. And so here, the true glory, interestingly, is in the wilderness, not in Herod's fortress. The true glory and the true king who is a shepherd is in the wilderness abundantly meeting the need of his people, not serving himself. So right off the bat, there's a tremendous contrast between Herod and Jesus, Herod's banquet and this meal in the wilderness. And of course, this meal speaks of a greater sacrifice that he will make when he gives himself up on the cross and the contrast could not be greater. So there's this contrast. Then we read of Jesus' compassion on the people as he saw them being with a sheep like sheep without a shepherd uh, there in verse 34. This is amazing that he has compassion because they're really intruding on the retreat. Right. They're they're intruding on this time away because they don't even have time to eat. They're worn out. The disciples have been on ministry. He says, let's go away and be by ourselves. And isn't it remarkable that when the crowds show up butting into their life, that still Jesus has compassion on them. May God give us such grace. Right. That we our compassion for others uh, surmounts our own uh, desire to have a comfortable life. But this is a reflection of a passage in Numbers 27 where Moses is praying to God on the eve of his own death that God supply someone to take care of the people of Israel when Moses is gone. And he puts it this way, a man who would lead the people so that they will not be a sheep 
that have no shepherd. So it's a direct quote or or reference to that. Um, And the same concern, you see, that Moses had. Same compassion. And it's interesting in that incident, the Lord said, I will provide Joshua. Of course, Joshua is the Old Testament name for Jesus. So here is the picture of the true Joshua, the true leader of God's people who has come uh, and is, shows this concern for the sheep. Also in Ezekiel 34, when the uh, prophet is speaking about Israel not having good shepherd kings to lead them, it, this is the analysis or the assessment. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. And God's solution later in Ezekiel 34 is, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd. So this compassion that he has for his sheep is reflective of Moses' compassion. And it's a sign that he is this David who has come to shepherd the sheep who otherwise would be scattered, who otherwise will not be fed. He's going to feed them. And of course, he does it physically right here in this passage as a symbol of what he will do magnificently spiritually for his people in nourishing us and shepherding us and caring for us all of our days and throughout eternity. So here he is caring for this multitude of God's people that are in the green pasture, as it says, they sat down on this uh, green grass. He is caring for them in the wilderness as the good shepherd. So there's this contrast between Herod and Jesus. There's this compassion that Jesus shows. And then, we've already touched on it, but there's this comparison between uh, Jesus and Moses. Three times it's mentioned that they are in the wilderness. And this is to make us think of the people of Israel who were in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, obviously, one of the big things that happened was God fed his people with manna in the wilderness. And so in a purposeful way, we're to think again of his people in the wilderness being fed. And so there's a comparison here here between Moses uh, and the manna and Israel in the, the wilderness. And even his leading as a shepherd, as we've said, is uh, recalls Moses. He even divides the crowd into groups like Moses divided up the people of Israel. It mentions in fifties and hundreds. And then also there's a comparison here between Jesus and Elisha because there's a specific incident in Elisha's life where they were out and away from food supplies and there had a, he had a hundred men and they needed bread And somebody came up with 20 loaves, and it was not enough to feed the hundred, but the loaves were multiplied. The bread was multiplied so that it could feed uh, the hundred men. Uh, And so this is a very similar miracle to recall that now here is the new prophet of God in a much more glorious way, meeting the needs of, of God's people. So there's this contrast, Jesus' compassion, uh, this comparison with Moses, a comparison with Elisha. 
And then I'd have to put this in quotation mark. You hate for people to talk like this, you know, because that's not really a conversation. And they usually misuse those quotation marks, right? Um, (laughs) But in this case, the word, I I am doing this, this on purpose, the disciples' concern for the crowds that were there. Uh, because it really wasn't a concern for the crowds. They just wanted the crowds gone. They wanted them out of their hair so they could just have a meal, right? They didn't want to deal with them. They didn't want to try to uh, take care of them. They didn't want to be responsible for them. They wanted the crowd gone. But they expressed it, of course, in, in terms of concern that they need to go on and, and get their food elsewhere. It's really surprising, isn't it, that Jesus says, you find him something to eat. Now, you you take care of this. And you would hope at that point, just like with Israel in the wilderness, they would say, Lord, how can we do this? What could you do to help us do this? Lord, help us. We can't do this. Something like that, you know, of a helpless dependence upon Jesus, a recognition that uh, they don't have the resources for this. Um, But they, kind of like Moses in the wilderness, where he has these people, and of course Moses is looking at this multitude, and he's thinking, he, he actually says this in Numbers 11, Where am I to find meat to give to all these people? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Shall all the fish in the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? Is there, you know, you can just imagine, is a big net going to scoop up a bunch of fish and drop them here? I mean, what's going to happen? How can this happen? Same kind of thing with the disciples, right? What, are we supposed to have a year's wage and go buy groceries for all these people? What are you talking about? See, the same kind of incredulity, this same unbelief, this is an impossible thing. And you would hope, even at that point, If they felt that, that they would then turn to Jesus. But they don't turn to Jesus. They don't depend upon Christ. They don't expect anything from him. And it really is amazing when he's healed people, he's cast out demons, he's caused the the storm to subside. And yet it's like he doesn't exist anymore. Like they were practical a-Christians, atheists. They were Ah, Christ. It was like he didn't exist. And so Jesus tells them to run an inventory on the food that's available. And these numbers are consistent in all four accounts in all four Gospels. Five loaves, two fish. To underscore the greatness of the miracle. And you think of how much bigger this one was than it was with Elisha. Elisha at least had one loaf for five guys. Okay? But still, there had to be a miracle to get everybody to eat. Here, one loaf for a thousand guys. <laughs> so it's just a gigantic, unbelievable thing that such a tiny, tiny portion of food could feed so many. That's being underscored for us by the mention of such a small, tiny uh, bit of food. So we see their, quote, concern. And then next, we see the uncontainable abundance that Christ brought about in this miracle. The uncontainable abundance. 
he presides after having them uh, sit. He he prays and he doesn't. It's not a blessing of the food, but it's a praise and a blessing to God, an honor to God. Now we don't know what his prayer was, but here's the typical Jewish. Uh, prayer over a family meal. He may have used this, probably something like this. Praise be to you, O Lord our God, King of the world, who makes bread to come forth from the earth and who provides for all that you have created. Probably some kind of acknowledgement of the majesty of God, the power of God, the glory of God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, some kind of recognition like, guys, remember who God is? Uh, Do you know that maybe I'm manifesting that God and all of his resources are mine because I am the son of God? Uh, There's some recognition, of course, of God's majesty here. And then we see this amazing miracle. We don't know exactly how it happened. Perhaps it was that he just multiplied the bread right in his hands and the fish. And it, it was literally creating something out of nothing. Because there was flesh that wasn't there. There was bread that simply wasn't there. It's not like the bread spread. It's like new bread. A lot of new bread had to be made. A lot of new fish had to be created out of nothing. He was the creator. He didn't have to go fishing. He didn't have to go plant wheat and and bring it in. He just makes it on the spot. He's the glorious Lord and he's manifested to us in this way by, by Mark. And so we come to see again that this Christ who is announcing the kingdom of God, who is announcing uh, the king's rule that has come to earth, the manifestation of his salvation and rescue, he is not bound by what is possible and what is impossible. These people are finding their needs met supernaturally. Because God is at work among his people. And here we see in Christ God's willingness to fill his creatures with himself. You see, to meet their needs with his abundance. And this shows that this compassion that he had for the crowd is now manifesting itself in giving them this abundance of grace that he has. And no one stands outside the sphere of his grace there. No one is left out. And the emphasis, probably 12 baskets because there were 12 apostles. Maybe these were baskets that they just always had with them to carry. And they're large. The word means a large basket. And it was always the custom to gather up food after a meal so that you could honor God in what he had provided. So this, though, underscores how great their miracle was. Every single person ate till they couldn't eat anything else, and they had this pile of food left over. It's just to underscore, for us, the abundance of God's salvation that comes to us. It overflows the boundaries. It's more than you could ever expect. It's always abundant and free. It enriches us beyond what we could expect. This is not just a statement about what Christ is able to do with bread and fish. 
It is a statement of what Christ is able to do through his salvation. Because this is just part of the story. And the story leads to when he lays down his life on the cross. And he is raised from the dead. And he is proclaimed as Lord of heaven and earth. Who now brings salvation and rescue to all peoples of the earth. This is a picture of the coming of the kingdom in its abundance. And the extension of that salvation that overflows the boundaries of people's hunger, lostness, brokenness, uh, sinfulness, degradation, corruption. And guilt. Meeting all of the needs that, that people have in the richness of his salvation. And then it goes immediately, and even there's the word immediately, into the next um, the next event of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, and so they're connected, and they're connected in a way that we'll see when you get to verse 12, that they didn't understand about the low. So the, the, Mark is laying this out, so it, and the event un, unfolds, so that something that happens in the water... Uh, underscores the fact that they didn't get the loaves either. So before we get to that, let me just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the practical application of this passage. Here's the case for us in terms of our salvation. We regularly don't see the abundance of God's provision for us as the people of God. We don't get what it means that he is really present with us and he is really fully present to bless us in our circumstances that he will always be providing us an abundance no matter what we're going through. That is so hard for us to hold on to. It's so hard for us to believe this is the place of abundance. This is the place of the manifestation of the riches of God, of Christ's salvation. We, all, we, we regularly underestimate what he is doing in our lives. That Jesus is always having compassion on us and always meeting the needs that we have by even bringing us into the circumstances that we have and then blessing us spiritually in the midst of this. And so you and I need to have this picture of Christ creating this bread and fish and abundantly meeting the hunger, the needs of their hunger, that that is a picture of what he is to you. That's a picture of what he will be for you as you trust him. You're the Christ always dedicated to meeting my needs and filling my hunger and taking up my brokenness and easing my guilt with your forgiveness and changing and transforming my life. Riken said of this, uh, of the disciples here, he says, they were acting like men without a God. Okay. And, and I think that's a striking phrase for us. Yeah, honey, as we were arguing, I, I was a husband acting like I didn't have a God. You know, that's what I was acting like. Like there isn't a God and I don't have one. And it's amazing how I, I love in certain movies where the last minute you, there's a desperate need for like a fire or something else. And somebody pulls out from the bottom of his pocket, pocket a match box. And it's got one match rattling in there. And it's like, 
we're saved. We have a match, you know. And I think of that, that tiny thing about a match. And I think, I won't even pull out God, you know. I won't, I won't admit, wait a minute, I have a God, you know. And I, and I sometimes find myself having to tell myself that, you know. Darwin, you have a God. A God has committed himself to you. In fact, that's the covenant. I will be your God. I will be to you God and you will be my people. That means I'm dedicated to your concern. I bring all of my resources to bear for you. And he demonstrates that in that he gives his son for me. What do I think? You know, who do I think this God is in in his demonstration of what he is to me by coming himself in the flesh and dying for me? That's his commitment. That's his covenant that the Lord over the whole earth is now mine. We have a God. We have a God who's going to change our character and make us like Christ. We have a God that's going to use us for his glory and use us in his mission. We have a God that will help us in relational struggle to find him in the midst of it and become more like him even in the pain and, and horror sometimes of relational struggle. We must believe that this Jesus is there and not be the disciples ignoring him as though he doesn't, is, doesn't exist. And we should, shouldn't we be expecting the unexpected from Jesus? Shouldn't that be kind of our regular thing? Expecting him to go beyond what we could think? Paul says this, doesn't he, in Ephesians 3? He's able to do far beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. How quickly I forget that. How quickly that's not my reality. And in so doing, I'm living like I don't have a God. I do have a God. You have a God. So often we are just... Limited by what we see and what we have instead of knowing that we have a God. So the disciples, you see, are saying, Jesus, five loaves, two fish, 5,000 people. And Jesus is saying, my father. I don't care. I don't care if it's 100,000 people. My father, my father. Resources, unbounded resources are ours. And then this issues immediately into this event of Jesus on the water. And there's much that we could say about it. He, in fact, in this uh, coming on the water, he is really revealing to him that he is none other than Yahweh. Because in the Old Testament, the one who's described as walking on water is God. Or walking through the water is God. So this is a clear symbol of The one who is God is now coming to us. The one who overcomes the water, overcomes the chaos and danger of water, who controls the water, it doesn't control him. And even as the, it uses the phrase passing by, which our translation's maybe not the best here, but he's passing by. That's the picture of of, uh, God saying to Moses, I will pass by and reveal my glory to you when he's on the mountain. And so here's Jesus. This is an unveiling of his glory to his his disciples. And even in his statement, I am, or it is I, this the same words that that 
Yahweh used in, in Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush. It is I. And to say, do not fear. That's the word of God. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Here, all of these things present Jesus to us as God himself, manifesting himself to the disciples at this point. But isn't it interesting when they're astonished, astounded at everything that happened? Of course, they thought they were seeing a ghost. I would too, probably, if I saw somebody, something walking out on the water like that. Not that they thought it was Jesus' ghost. They just thought it was an apparition, a ghost of some kind. And so they're just astonished. He gets in the boat. The, the storm is calmed again as he's Lord of the storm and Lord of the winds. And you get this. I, I think, as I read it this time, it was really an amazing statement. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And it must mean... They didn't understand the significance of who Jesus is as the Lord. They didn't get what Christ was revealing about himself. And so it's like they're seeing it all over again and don't even know what to make of it. And I want to call us to this. Do you and I understand the lows? Okay. That's the challenge I want to leave you with. Do you and I understand the lows? Do we believe, and I want to put it in this way, do we believe that God himself has taken up our cause and is committed to our good? To the degree that we do not rest and don't expect for him to be all in for me, that don't expect him to take up my cause, or I don't believe that he is all in and, and takes up my cause and is, uh, and is for me, then I'm being hardened in my heart against him. Because he is a God who is infinitely compassionate. He gives himself to me freely in his son. This is the son of God manifesting all the riches of his father, all the glory and power of his father. And he's done this for us. He's done this for you and for me. And if I... And thinking he just ignores me. He doesn't pay attention to me. He doesn't care about me. That's a hardening of the heart. And I don't get the lows. The lows are saying. I am powerful. And I am good. And I will abundantly meet your need. But we like the disciples. Can get into a frame of mind. Of not really expecting him to do much. Not really expecting him to change me. Not really expecting him to change my relationships. Not really expecting this sin to be uh, dealt with in my life. Not expecting to be used of God. Just not expecting much from God. That's a sign of your heart being hardened against him. Against his goodness. Not to believe in the goodness and greatness of Christ. And so by God's grace... We must, we want to expect him to act. I want to expect him to act for me, to enrich me and rescue me and transform me and use me. To expect that is to believe in God's true commitment and love to you. And to be hardened against it. To to think that God's just going to 
barely do anything for me or at least not send me to hell, you know. And sometimes it gets to that point. Well, I think I will go to heaven, but I don't know much more than that, you know. So we must ask this question, am I really understanding the greatness of his love and power toward me that he has shown in the person of Jesus Christ? So the disciples here are, uh, they're set before us. Interestingly, he doesn't reject them. He doesn't just say, you know, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to throw you in the water at this point. <laughs> I'm just getting rid of you. Try to find some more people that will believe in me. He doesn't abandon them. That's encouraging. Even with these kinds of struggles, even with this, this dullness, Jesus is patient with them. He continues to reveal himself to them. And if you are his, he will continue to unveil his glory and beauty so that more and more you are convinced of his love and greatness and you expect him to do great things in your life. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that we would have the greatest expectation of your goodness. Lord, forgive us that so quickly we can dull the edge of your compassion in our hearts. We can deny you. We can deny how good you are. We can deny your care of us, your concern for us. Lord, forgive us for becoming hardened against your goodness. Bless us, Lord, as even the writer of Hebrews says, that we will not have an evil, unbelieving heart, the turn from the living God, and that we will have that faith that the writer speaks about of those who really believe that God is a rewarder of those that seek him. You are the great one who enriches us with yourself. You give us your life. You give us your spirit. You give us forgiveness. You give us constant transformation. Lord, may we believe in the greatness and goodness of our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.